Welcome. My name is Jonathan Cohn. I'm a senior national correspondent at HuffPost. I'm also today's moderator uh, for a panel which we have called The Health Data Revolution, Improving Outcomes and Protecting Privacy. Uh, our panelists today, starting from my immediate right, are John Halamka, Chief Information Officer at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Chair of the Healthcare Information Technology Standards Panel, Thomas Lee, Chief Medical Officer at Preskeny and Professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard Chan School, Lipika Samal, Associate Physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital uh, and an investigator in health information technology, and joining us by remote, uh, is uh, Devin McGraw, former Deputy Director of Health Information Privacy at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights. This event is sponsored jointly by HuffPost and is part of the Dr. Lawrence and H. and Roberta Cohn Forums. We are very pleased to welcome the Cohn family who are with us here today and for the record have no relation to me. <laughs> we are streaming live on the websites of the forum and the website for HuffPost. We are also streaming on Facebook, so there are many ways to tune in. Uh, the program will include a brief question and answer period after uh, the panel discussion is done. And you can email questions to the forum at the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat that is happening at the forum site right now. Um, when we talk about great innovations in medicine and we think back to history, uh, we think of the first vaccines in the 1800s or the discovery and creation of antibiotics in the 1900s. But if you talk to people in medicine today about the next great wave of innovations, you're as apt to hear about technology and the power of information as you are about new treatments or procedures. And you'll hear about precision medicine, which is the targeting of therapies based on specific genetic information of the patients, uh, faster, more comprehensive monitoring of patient data, not just to perfect treatment, but to, keep, to promote better health so that patients themselves can see what's going on with their lives. The use of data to allocate sources, resources more efficiently within a hospital or within a community. And the use of machine learning and decision support technology to expand the reach of medical professionals to improve clinical decisions. Um, but when we talk about the data revolution in medicine, it is just as easy to think about the pitfalls as the promise. The bedrock for all of these innovations is good, solid medical records that tell us what we need to know and can be widely shared. And yet doing that is very hard to hard to do is even today after 10, 20 years of trying to develop electronic medical records, there are massive struggles about systems communicating with each other, data that doesn't tell us what we think it does. And then there's a whole raft of concerns with privacy and security. What use will the data have? Who will get to see it? How will it be put to use? And how do we make sure it doesn't get into the wrong hands? Let's look at a clip just to get a sense of one simple, straightforward use of medical data and how it's already affecting patients. The day I found out that something was amiss, that I knew I had to take control of my mom's health care, was a scary time for my family and I. My mom's coherency wasn't there, she was in a daze, she was being forgetful. I went into her closet and I found all this medication that she either should have been taking or she was being over-medicated and the dosage was too high. The doctor was getting the message that the medication wasn't working, when in fact she wasn't taking it at all. When I found that out, I knew I needed to do something and take control of my mom's health. We were able to use the doctor's portal to compare and contrast what medications she was taking. We were able to look at the medical history online and compare what the doctor was prescribing and what my mom was taking. So it took 
I would say six months to get my mom to the right medication. And when you think of six months of going to so many doctor's appointments in person, we were able to cut that probably in half, if not more, because we were able to communicate with the doctor through this portal with simple questions and simple answers back and forth. English is a second language to my mom. She knows English very well, but a lot of times we have to repeat our answers. And at the doctor's office, I find the doctor having to repeat over and over and over again. And a lot of times these medications are very foreign to not only me, but to my mom. When she logs onto the portal, she's able to digest the information at her own pace multiple times and she can look back whenever she wants, as often as she wants to, and she can look at it, understand it, and if she has questions again, she can still ask the doctor online through this portal. So John, let me start with you. That was a, that was a nice story there. Absolutely. Very simple, straightforward patient, family's patient gets to see their data, use that to guide their decisions. Give me your overview of the possibilities here, where, where you think this is all going, where we've come, where we go, and you know, all in three minutes. Of course. <laughs> well, we represent the Harvard system, and the Harvard system has been using electronic health records since the late 70s, back when your computer was as powerful as today's toaster. And we gradually brought more and more data to digital form. So we started with laboratories, then pharmacy, then radiology, and then notes. Well, over the last 10 years, the entire United States has moved forward substantially, in fact, Prior to 10 years ago, we were about 10% of doctors and hospitals using electronic health records nationally. Today, we're over 90. So we have achieved a digital healthcare system. However, along the way, we've lost the hearts and minds of doctors and nurses and sometimes patients. Because doctors now say, yes, I have a digital record, but I spend 50 or 60% of my day typing. It's hard to make eye contact. Patients feel like they walk into an examination room and the doctor's focused on the laptop and not on the patient. So imagine entering 140 data elements, having 40 quality measures, being empathetic, never ever committing malpractice, and engaging the patient in 12 minutes. It's extraordinarily hard. So I think what we've learned is, yes, a digital system empowers patients like the video you just saw, but we really need to rethink the way the electronic health record functions to be more of a help rather than a burden on patients, doctors, and nurses. Well, Tom, you're a clinician. How do you see it? Well, no, and I've been living through the changes uh, that John was describing. I mean, when I started my career in, in the 1980s, working with Dr. Larry Cohn, uh, the, the late great cardiac surgeon whose family helped sponsor this meeting, uh, there was this belief that you could know everything and you should actually remember everything about patients. I was taught when I was presenting cases on morning rounds that you know, we all stood up, neckties on if you were a man, white coat on, and you presented from memory. You did not look down at any paper if you really had your act together. That was the culture. It was probably ridiculous back then, but we actually were trying to pull it off. But there have been three great revolutions that have occurred since then uh, that have created a perfect storm. And they are great. They're all good. Like one is there's been tremendous medical progress. So there's so much more that we have to know because there's so much more that we can actually do something with. Then our IT systems are so much better at bringing all that information that we could and should know to us. And the third is that our patients are just so much more activated. They're, they're, they're more interested, they're more knowledgeable, they're reaching out to us, they're, they're not passive, they're surfing the net, they're, and they're emailing us, texting us with uh, questions and, go, and going through electronic medical record. All three of those things 
really fantastic. They're really good things, but they're, the result is something overwhelming for the people actually taking care of patients where they simply feel like a fire hose is being turned on them and when they log on to electronic medical record or open their emails. And I feel that, uh, you know, I wrote, helped write an article recently that with a colleague in the New England Journal that basically said every patient has become a big data problem. There's so much information and you can't tell what's noise and the only way you can tell what's noise is look at it over time and the human brain just can't handle it for one patient, let alone a thousand or two thousand patients who might be in your panel. But I'm an optimist because I think that we're early in this revolution and we will figure it out. We may not figure it out in my lifetime, but we will get our act together and it'll be through discussions like this and work being done by younger colleagues like to my right. <laughs> oh, you see that, that you took my introduction line. Uh, but Libby Cuts, so there's this revolution in the works, I hear. Tell me, you're part of this revolution. What are you saying? Great, yeah. So I would love to tell you guys about a positive example. Uh, so I conducted a research study along with a group of researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, and what we did was we looked at chronic kidney disease as a condition that affects uh, you know, 26 million Americans. Um, it's a condition that occurs in older people, people who have diabetes and hypertension, so patients that have a very complex medical problems. And uh, what we knew is that another group of researchers had developed a predictive risk model, basically a mathematical formula that could predict a given patient's risk of kidney failure in the next five years. Um, you know, this is something that computers are very good at, finding the six lab values and other characteristics to calculate this, um, calculating the risk score, but a busy human being who's thinking about so many other things in a brief uh, interaction with a patient might not be going to the website and, and entering this information. So we worked with a group of technical experts at Diameter Health, and we built an app that layers on top of the EHR, and it extracts the data, calculates the score, and sends it back, and just displays that on the patient summary page, doesn't pop up, or hopefully doesn't distract the clinician, um, but it helps them to just have that little bit more information that they can use to, to triage this patient and consider referring them to a specialist if that's necessary. And then what's really exciting about it is the guts of the application could be re reused for a patient application because we used interoperability standards and we used open source libraries. So, you know, we plan to um, open source all of our code. Other people can take that springboard off of it. Um, they can also follow the method that we used, which was, you know, we use these blocks of code, open source libraries that are free and open to the public. Um, and we taught our program to understand data that's formatted in a way that is standard across the entire country, and that's also free and open to the public. So I think this is a really positive example of where we're going. Well, uh, Devin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it over to you now. We, we're just listening to these wonderful possibilities, these stories, what you can do with this data, and yet we live in this world with these highly publicized breaches of computer data. We've heard about breaches of medical data. Sketch out for me the challenges and the concerns here. I would, you know, what do we need to do to protect people? These are the most personal, intimate details of people's lives. That's right. Well, well, privacy is an important thing to consider, but it's not an either or. It's not a situation where either you have privacy or you have robust electronic medical records. That's just not tenable. People will not trust a system that doesn't protect their health information. So we really need both. And there's kind of a good news, bad news story here, which is HIPAA. The good news is we've had HIPAA. It's been around for a long time. It is uh, protects both data in paper and also data electronically, and it has held up remarkably well, given that it was first introduced to the public 
uh, in early 2000. But the bad news is that we have HIPAA. And the bad news piece of it is that it doesn't cover all health data. If the woman on the video who was helping her mother and looking at the medications that she was taking on the portal and making a record of it, if she had used an app, say on a phone, for example, the information that she collected in that app would not be protected by HIPAA. HIPAA only protects data when it's in hospital records, doctor's records, and health plan records. It doesn't protect data in consumer-facing tools. And there's a lot of data that's in those tools increasing by the day. And the other thing that is unfortunate about HIPAA is that there are many myths about it, and it has, in some circumstances, become an obstacle to sharing of health information because a lot of uh, entities who have health information, doctors, hospitals, either because they don't fully understand HIPAA or because they're overly conservative and concerned, they say, HIPAA won't allow me to share that data. HIPAA won't allow me to do X. When, you know, nine times out of 10, when I hear questions like that, I have to say, no, wait, yes, it does. <laughs> HIPAA does allow you to share for treatment. It does allow you to share for public health. It requires you to give data to the patient. It's exactly the opposite of what you're saying. So again, we have, we have some challenges to address there, and you mentioned the data breaches, but I think we have to be attacking those issues not as a zero-sum game, like either we have one or we have the other. We have to have both in order to facilitate the data-rich environment that we need. Let's, let's stay on HIPAA for a minute. I think we have a, another video uh, queued up, if we can bring that up. Uh, let's go roll that tape. Your health information, your rights. Whether your health information is stored on paper or electronically, you have the right to keep it private. Those rights are protected under a law known as HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. HIPAA gives you important rights. First off, you have the right to see or get a copy of your medical records. Sometimes you might not be able to see certain parts of the full record, but you always have the right to ask. If you find a mistake in your record, you have the right to request to have it corrected. If you disagree with your doctor or health plan about certain information in your record, you have a right to submit a written statement of disagreement that will be kept with your record. You also have the right to know how your health information is used and shared. Now, your provider is allowed to share your information for certain reasons without asking you first, like when your doctors work together to determine how to best treat you when you're sick, or to report the flu when it's in your area. But in general, your providers can't give information to an employer, for example, without your permission. And if you'd like to know who has seen your health information, you have the right to get a report. That's called an accounting of disclosures. HIPAA gives you the right to say how you want to be contacted. For example, you can tell your provider what phone number they should call to contact you and whether they can leave a message. HIPAA also gives you the right to request that your information not be shared with certain people or organizations. All these rights are spelled out in the Notice of Privacy Practices which is usually given to you or posted at your doctor's office or hospital. Be sure to read this notice carefully. It lets you know exactly how your information will be used and shared and how your rights are being protected. And lastly, if you think any of these rights have been violated, you have the right to file a complaint. We're serious about working with you to protect your health information. Know your rights. So, Devin, I don't want to let you off the hook yet. So that was a, that was a very nice video, and it set out the basic principles of what uh, 
people can expect what their rights are. But you were just saying before that you know we need to update HIPAA. HIPAA needs to be brought up to date with the current. So give me your. You worked in the office that produced that video. You're familiar with this process. Give me your list. What? How would you update HIPAA? What would you do exactly? And briefly, two or three top two or three items. Top two or three. Okay. Well, so I would definitely extend HIPAA to cover more health data. Now, the agency that I used to work for doesn't have the power to do this. This is something that Congress would need to do. But other countries protect data regardless of who has it. Those are called data protection laws. We do not. Uh, and I think it's about time that that got upgraded so data doesn't cycle in and out of being protected. Um, the other um, way that I would improve HIPAA is um, – you know, I think if you see that video, there's a lot that's kind of dated about the processes, right? It's, you know, you get a paper notice of privacy practices and you can, you know, submit something on, you know, there there is a sort of, even though that HIPAA was aimed at being both digital and on paper, there's a sluggishness about that that's very paper-based about the way all of it gets implemented. And I think it needs an upgrade for the digital age. And And those are two big ones, so I'll stop there. <laughs> two is good. Two is good. So, so that was sort of the policymaker's perspective. I want to get one of the practitioners here because you guys deal with HIPAA. I mean, I, I know as a patient dealing with HIPAA, if I have to sign one more HIPAA form in my life, um, uh, you know, I mean, I've, every time it's whatever, but that's a minor inconvenience. For you guys, one of you take this. What? Well, you know, I, my own feeling is that uh, I, I like Devin's remarks because we focus so much on what HIPAA's the barriers HIPAA tries to create and sometimes forget about what is HIPAA trying to promote. And the flow of information to patients is an inherently good thing. It's a true north. And uh, in my own organization, like, we don't let everything flow. Like, the patients I saw this morning, like, they can't see their x-ray results right away. They can see some other blood work. You know, the, the hours of meeting time that went into deciding what they could see when, frankly, it's a waste of time. I, I mean, I think that we should, the true north is transparency to the patient, they own their data, and we should be trying to take down some, some of those barriers. That's one of the lessons I've learned over the last few years. We get paralyzed by exceptions in healthcare. We talk about the one really weird case in which something perverse might happen, and we create a tremendous amount of work for a zillion people uh, you know, to try to, in the way of barriers. And I think, we, I, I think we're learning that good things happen when patients have their information much more than bad. So about a couple of other thoughts. So we've been sharing data with patients, including their notes, since 1999. X-rays, EKG reports, they're all shared. If clinicians thought that the open sharing of data would result in phone calls, confusion, uh, patients would actually feel anxious if they read a note because I might write something in it they don't understand. And let me give you an example of what I actually did. I'm an emergency physician. So I wrote, the patient came to the emergency department with SOB. Now, it turns out SOB stands for shortness of breath. I know that. <laughs> the patient didn't. And you can understand the potential for misunderstanding. But what we actually have found is there have been virtually no misunderstandings or any discomfort between doctor and patient. As a CIO, one other issue that I have, I protect the security of two million patient records. And figuring out how to share in the right way, as Devin and Tom has, have suggested, providers and patients and insurance companies, but while protecting the security of that data is increasingly challenging. I've been the CIO since 97, 
In 97, what was the greatest threat? MIT freshmen. <laughs> what is the threat today? State-sponsored cyber terrorism, organized crime, and hacktivism. And I have malware and ransomware. So, so it's a very different uh, dynamic security environment. Security and privacy are two different things. Oh, I realize, but right. think of it as privacy as a set of policies for which security can be a technology that enforces that policy. So I, I of course, always look to Devin for the right answer. <laughs> that was a good one, John. <laughs> um, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk again about sort of imagining what this data can do. And, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started. Uh, again, the foundation for all this is good electronic medical data. And I'm curious, how good is the data? I mean, the, the, how, 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 you know, what, what, and, and Lipica, since you've mm -hmm. developed something, you know, you've right. worked, what are you seeing in the actual data? I mean, how much information is out there that you can actually <coughs> use as opposed to data that's not sorted the right way or, I mean. Mm -hmm. Well, we were lucky because this, this, well, we picked this risk prediction model based on the fact that it only needs some demographic characteristics such as age and some lab values. Those are the most highly structured and accurate types of information in the record. I mean, the LOINC coding system dates back, I don't know, you probably you probably know 30 or so years, 40 years maybe. Um, so we were able to, you know, we, we had very good data fidelity and accuracy with those data types. We had other problems like, you know, for example, a physician may not have checked that lab, but that's a totally different type of issue. And I think, you know, there's some other data accuracy problems that, that we could go into. You know, one other thing I'd say is that um, uh, you know, the f overwhelming amount of data and the overwhelming number of things that people are being measured on, it's a driver of burnout these days, which is a big issue mm -hmm. in healthcare. Uh, one of the most encouraging things burnout I've seen, out. I you you know, where clinicians in general, physicians in particular, feel just burned out. You know, they feel overwhelmed by the work, they feel depersonalized, they feel ineffective. Uh, those, entering the data or under? Or, or you know, just just about their professional lives no, in general. They just feel like uh, they're underwater. They can't do a good job. And being measured on so many different things is 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 a, is a significant driver. But one of the uh, you know, I think representative of the kinds of wisdom we need, uh, like Providence St. Joseph's, the big healthcare system in the Northwest. I think really maybe the most creative, interesting system out there right now. Uh, they actually have. They've, they've asked physicians to come up with which measures they give a darn about. They used another word, but then they remember they're a religious-based system, and they changed <laughs> it to give a darn. So they showed the cardiologists all the things they were being measured on, and they said, they asked two questions. Which of these measures would you feel proud if you knew you were better than average on? And which of these do you think your patients would feel glad that you were better than average on? So, and the, the overlap, they said, okay, these will be the 10 measures that we really focus on for you. So, and so the, instead of feeling overwhelmed by measures, what I understand from my visits and conversations with people there is that the clinicians actually feel like their professionalism is being bolstered by having, you know, a subset that everyone knows these are the ones that really matter. So I think that it, I think we will get wiser, and it's going to take work like this to figure out which of the massive amounts of data we have we really want to pay the most attention to. 
And let me just amplify Tom's point. So, of course, it used to be the doctor typed in or maybe the nurse typed in, but now we have Internet of Things. It's your Fitbit. It's your blood pressure cuff. It's your glucometer. It's your, uh, the devices you have in your home. Well, what is a doctor going to do with 10,000 normal blood pressure measurements that are now sitting in front of the screen in that 12 minutes that we talked about they have to digest all this data? So our challenge is building the applications that turn data into wisdom. What I really care about is, did your blood pressure change? Did your weight change? Do you have congestive heart failure? Did you gain 10 pounds over the weekend? You're going to show up in the emergency department on Monday unable to breathe. And so that's this next generation of tools and technology. It's layering on top the electronic health record, like you described, those things that actually make the electronic health record your friend, a useful tool to navigate the data with to-do lists, the wisdom of what you should do with a patient in front of you now. So I, I'm curious what you just said, sort of, you know, making, you know, getting to wisdom, getting to be able to use the data in this way. Where is that innovation going to come from? I mean, is that going to come from academia, from hospitals? Is that going to come from IT, venture capital? I mean, I, I maybe, maybe these are, they blend too much to be able to separate them, but I'm curious who you think is going to really well, drive this. I mean, I know if you spend time in Silicon Valley, you'll hear it one story. If you spend time at your major teaching hospitals, you'll hear a different story. And I'm but, curious, uh, anybody wants to jump but, but in? Let me just start. The way I spent my morning today is the state of Massachusetts has something called the Mass Challenge. It's an incubator for entrepreneurs. And we, this year, received 500 applications from 31 countries to come to Boston and to create innovative applications, of which we chose 60. And this morning was about hearing their pitches. So it's a strange thing for me to say, but our major electronic health event, record vendors, uh, they're okay, but it's the 26-year-olds in the garage that are going to create that next innovation. Yeah, I hear 26-year-olds in garage do things in technology. I hear. <laughs> in medicine, too. Well, Devin, what do you have thoughts on? Yeah, I mean, I would say the technology space has a lot to teach us in healthcare. You know, many of the problems around taking huge volumes of data and creating tools that pull the data out that's necessary and create visualizations and tools that people can actually use easily, frictionless, that hasn't really happened as much in healthcare. So the idea that, you know, those brains that created those tools in many other sectors of our economy are now drilling down and saying, how can I fix healthcare? Major technology companies who create tools that we use in our daily lives all have healthcare components to them. So big and small, the technology brains, again, that have fixed other very similar problems around data, making it useful, making it shareable, are, are aiming at healthcare. So I think we're right on the cusp of some really exciting things. Now, having said all that, healthcare is still very complicated. So it will probably never be the case that that the, that the developments happen, you know, out of technology without some brains around healthcare being there to say, no, this won't work because of X, but it will work if we just tweak it just in this way and, you know, we need to make sure it works in workflow or can be worked into workflow. You know, I think it's really a melding of great academic brains, Boston very well known for that, and technology expertise for which there are pockets of it all over the country, really. It's not just in Silicon Valley. When we talk about the power of data, I feel like I, I hear, I've heard so much about precision medicine, personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. And I have to be honest that 
uh, I have, and, and, I, and I know something about this, I'm not a complete novice, I have no idea where in that spectrum we actually are. I hear these, you know, you hear the, 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 the futurist and you read the essay, someday you'll be able to target a specific therapy for a specific cancer to a specific patient, and obviously some of that happens now. I don't have a great sense of how far along we are in there and where the possibilities are. I, I don't know, Tom or Luvika, if you want to take a shot at that. Well, you know, uh, this topic, I, I work a lot with Michael Porter, Harvard Business School. And uh, so he, this is uh, the, uh, our comment on, on this topic of precision medicine, personalized medicine, which is that uh, it's the wrong unit of analysis. And, you know, no one comes to Beth Israel Deacons Hospital because I want precision medicine, or I want, I want personalized medicine, or depersonalized medicine. <laughs> they come because they've got a problem. They're scared. They've got Parkinson's disease or something like that. And so our feeling is, is that the real unit of analysis, the unit of improvement, the unit of accountability has to be organized around patients, around groups of patients with similar needs. You know, patients with Parkinson's disease, patients with lung cancer. And then, then the question is like, is there a role that some of the technologies that are described as precision medicine have to offer these patients or not? It's not like there's a de precision medicine characterized institution. It might, it should get used like the IT system should be used by groups of clinicians focused on groups of patients. So that's our sort of strategy, organizational thinking about where this, where this kind of thing fits. So we think there's a lot of hype around it, but it'll ultimately some of the technologies will be very useful for teams of clinicians taking care of groups of patients with similar needs. Right. And I mean, some of the gains might be at the system level. So for example, you know, patients that have certain genetic defects, or I should say defects, but mutations may process medications different ways. So if you give them an anticoagulant to thin their blood, they may, their blood may become too thin or not thin enough, which has, which both have problems. Um, you know, so that those gains could be seen at the patient level if you avoid some horrible um, consequence of that, or at the system level because now you're actually able to keep these patients in the right range, um, you know, more easily, and you're not spending as much time with pharmacists calling them, nurses calling them, having them come in for blood tests. So I think that we need to think about the whole broad spectrum of gains that can that we can see from precision medicine. So in a similar category of innovations and how far along are we on them, you hear a lot about machine learning, right, and uh, I mean, there's the sort of fantastical, you know, the robot will replace your doctor and do everything. Not this likely. One version of it. Um, I always like to say, it, it probably, at least I was told, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong, the, the better analogy here is not the robot doctor that took care of Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, but it's the tricorder that Dr. McCoy used mm. in Star Trek. It was <laughs> as a tool to help not to actually do the treatment. Perfect. But, but oh, I got it right. That's good. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but even, you know, along that and along that spectrum, how long far are along, you know, for useful decision, you know, support tools for, you know, physicians? I mean, you can imagine, and, you know, what are, the, what are the ways, you know, what, how much help can they actually provide? I mean, you guys are, you know, you're pretty smart. You know what you're doing. <laughs> Whoever wants to. Oh, sure. Well, I'll start. I, so I have a dozen machine learning projects currently at Beth is Ridiculous, and they're not sexy. They're not the doctor is going to be replaced by the HAL 9000. They're something like this. Though we're a digital hospital, we get 18 inches of paper every day. I used to have four people read through 18 inches of paper. Oh, that's a camp form. That's a lab order. That's a referral. Oh, it's a signed consent. So our question was, could Amazon machine learning services recognize a camp form? 
And the answer is, if you give a thousand sheets of paper to Amazon Machine Learning, it eventually learns what a camp form looks like. It can actually figure out who the patient is and where to insert it into the electronic health record. So today, with 99% accuracy, our external paper is read by Amazon under a business associate agreement. Don't worry, Devin, it's all appropriately private and inserted without human intervention. The human now just has to look at the small stack of paper that's the exception. And that's just one example of how workflows can be radically changed with computers augmenting human capability, not replacing it. Uh, like a lot of my colleagues want to dismiss the notion of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I don't think that's quite right. Uh, and I know why they want to dismiss it, and it might be wishful thinking. But uh, the New England Journal piece I alluded to at the beginning about every patient being a big data problem, the, the point that Ziad Obermeyer and I wanted to make was that just as in the previous century, we, you know, we hit the limits of how our ability of our senses to provide first-rate care, like you know, we need stethoscopes to listen, we need x-rays in order to see what's going on inside the body, uh, our thinking is that we're at the limits of human cognition in, the, in terms of our ability to handle all the data and process it and know what to do. We are going to have to figure out how to work better in groups to handle all the information, and how to work better with patients, and how to work better with all the information. And uh, physicians and other clinicians who know how to interact with IT folks and understand statistics and algorithm development, they're going to play a valuable role in the healthcare system that will evolve. So um, we're sitting here at this very prestigious academic medical center in this very high-tech environment talking about all the wonderful ways that data is being used. I will tell you, I just came back from Florida where my father, 70-something, soon-to-retire private practitioner, I was speaking with him. And I can promise you that, as far as he's concerned, um, uh, electronic medical records have not been a net plus to his life. And, and, and so much of our medical care is not in a setting like this, but it's out in you know the private practitioner or whatever. And I'm curious. How much, when you hear these complaints, and I know you guys hear them, you know, from how much do you think this is people, you got to get with the program, you gotta, you're not seeing the possibilities, and how much do you think, you know what, they got legitimate gripes. I mean, these are, you know, this stuff doesn't work that well yet. And, and when we try to transfer it from a sophisticated health system like, you know, Harvard or, you know, Mayo or wherever, or Cleveland Clinic, down to the level of the sort of everyday practitioner somewhere, um, it's it just, it's not there yet. So, I mean, there are old problems and new problems, you know. So, I, I worked on a project at Ariadne Labs uh, with Atul Gawande and his group, and uh, our team interviewed a group of oncologists, and we talked to them about the barriers they face in gathering all the information they need to start a patient on treatment, and we talked to people all over the country. Um, the barriers they face are old problems, and they don't see a solution coming from the systems that we have right now, so that's very frustrating. And then there are new problems. You know, when you get that list, just like the patient in the video got the list on the patient portal, you know, sometimes we get an electronic list from an emergency room or something, emergency department, and we didn't have that before. So now it's a new problem. Oh, I have to somehow synthesize all of this new information, but it's, that's a net positive because at least I know what they were trying to, to do for the patient and I can incorporate that in my plan. So there's old and new problems. Devin, what do you... What, what, uh, what do you see out there? I mean, and also from the standpoint of patients. I mean, I hear the same thing from my mother, who is a consumer of healthcare, not a producer of healthcare, but also she doesn't why is, you know, portal, she's getting these forms, she doesn't understand. I mean. Right, right. 
I, I think in many respects we've um, we've forgotten about the user interface piece of of a lot of this technology, right? We got we got very excited about multiple functionalities. We got very excited about data. We got super enthusiastic about all the things that we wanted physicians and other clinicians to be able to collect as part of the meaningful use program, right? And and we just ramped it up very quickly in terms of all of the data gathering, and then we have these other developments around patient-facing tools. And the reality is it, it, we, it's, it's both too much and not enough at the same time, and it's not being presented in a way that gives for the user an, a, you know, a, an interaction that is built for them, right, that is easy for them, that fits into what they are doing, that fits into their lives. This is another aspect where a lot of technologies that we use in other parts of our daily lives have figured this out, right? You know, how many of us bank mobily? How many of us did that 10 years ago? How easy is it to do? Pretty darn easy, right? We, 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 we blame the people as opposed to saying, you know, this is a technology problem that we ought to be able to fix, right? It's, Creating the seamless user interface is is a solvable problem, and why we haven't focused as much on it to date as we have is a bit of a mystery. But but I think we have ample opportunity to do that going forward. We're wasting opportunities if we're not thinking about the end user and how we're making it easy for them. You know, one other thing a comment I'd make is that uh, I I agree with Devin that uh, the user. Uh, ease of ease of use is will become uh, will be, get better and better at that and uh, like at Providence St. Joe's the system I mentioned you know their head of innovation is a guy named Aaron Martin who came from Amazon and and you know he says that what he learned at Amazon and what he's taken to healthcare is that he, at Amazon the only two people who matter are the people producing the value and the people using the value the authors and the readers and whatever they do should be making life better for one or both is in healthcare it's cl- clinicians and patients. And um, whereas he came to healthcare four years ago and he said everything that was layered on top of both of them was about collecting money and not about making life better for them and trying to strip away the stuff that is not about making patient care better, that, that work is actually you know, underway. So I, I think that um, um, the things that are burning out your father, uh, I, you know, the last thing I'd say is that you know, if, I was a history science major in college, and if you look at golden ages in history, people who were living through them were miserable. You know, <laughs> because at times of great cha- progress, it means great change, and change is miserable. And so this era must be really golden. But we will adjust, and we will look back at this time and say, my gosh, the change that occurred in the second part of the last part of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century was incredible. They must have been so excited. It's a nice transition point. We were going to do some questions from Lisa has some already queued up for us. So Great. Thank you. We'll do some from online, and then we can see if anyone in the studio has any. This is an interesting one. It's from a viewer in China. Oh, wow. China is going through a major health care reform, just as we are going through a big leap forward, both in economy and in big data. There hasn't been an exact counterpart to HIPAA yet. What would the panelists recommend as China starts to build something similar? I guess that may be for you, Devin, or? Devin, yeah, I think that maybe is for you. Whoa. Uh, Go go make policy for the largest country on earth. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, they're they're really getting hit from all sides. Um, 
you know, back several years ago in the early high-tech implementation when we were trying to think about how best to move forward, I don't think we spent enough time trying to learn from the experiences of, our, of other countries and their um, kind of lessons learned around adoption of electronic medical records. Um, there's a whole lot of, um, uh, I don't want to say, I'm not, not quite sure how to put this in a way that's not a little macabre, but there, there's a lot of, of lessons learned in terms of mistakes that people have made, both here and there, that you know China can take advantage of learning from, right? Did we do the right thing in meaningful use, for example, by focusing on the data collection first, as opposed to getting to sharing much more quickly, as one example? Um, what about the example in the UK about, you know, sort of collecting data centrally in ways that the public didn't expect uh, and that ended up backfiring on them, right? There are just, you know, hosts of lessons learned that, frankly, China at this stage can, can completely take advantage of in terms of how, how they build uh, going forward. Great. Thank you. Here's another one from Carol Martin. Health disparities plays a significant role in face-to-face -face medical care for much of our constituents already, and we see the negative outcomes data for these patients. What are your thoughts regarding issues of bias or lack of awareness and inclusion in big data due to narrow bias data programming data sets and algorithm design and on the future of disparities in the new world of big data medicine? Who wants that one? I mean, I'll, I'll say that. I mean, I feel very optimistic that this will be another source of data which will overwhelm uh, us here at this end of the table as we take care of patients. But I know that you know, uh, Epic and other IT vendors are actively working to incorporate other kinds of data than what we currently see, social needs data, climate data, so like when the air quality is poor, we might actually get alerted that our asthmatics are in more danger. Uh, but the social needs data is actually number one on the list. You know, patients who don't have access to food, uh, you know, good food, healthy food, you know, patients who have other kinds of social needs issues. So I do think that, that uh, delivery systems and IT systems that work with them are starting to collect this information. And, you know, what Judy Faulkner says about machine learning, says it's, it's basically programmers writing code to sort of help clinicians avoid overlooking things they might overlook otherwise. And I think this will help us with some of the disparities issues. It won't solve all the problems, but it'll help. And actually, I would just say that looking at national ambulatory medical care data, we found that there were actually less disparities or lower disparities when clinicians used uh, electronic health records with clinical decision support in terms of blood pressure control. And I also did a, um, a survey with researchers at Hopkins of women visiting the Baltimore City Sexually Transmitted Infections Clinic, and this was back in 08, we found a higher rate of use of SMS text messaging in that population than the national. So I think that there are a lot of aspects to this that we, we should be thinking about, but there's, there's reason for optimism. Great, thank you. I'll do one more, and then we can see if anyone here has any questions. Uh, let's see. Medical devices, as we've been discussing, pose a major risk where health data can be compromised. What are some of the top medical devices that pose problems? We hear a lot about connected pacemakers and insulin pumps, for example, but what others should we know about and what are your suggestions for avoiding risks in this area? 
Sure, so why didn't I take that? So I have 5,000 medical devices at Beth Israel Deaconess. These are IV pumps and EKG machines, x-ray machines. Many of these devices were built at a time when security threats weren't significant. And so they do not, many of them, have built-in security protections. What do I do? Well, I can't tell you precisely, but <laughs> <laughs> it's a multi-layer defense. So for example, our medical devices aren't connected to the internet and we put certain protections and firewalls around them to make sure they can't send data to places that we don't expect. What we're starting to see is the FDA has taken an active role in providing guidance, and I'm sure Devin was part of this guidance. Bill Mazel at the FDA came up with a risk-based evaluation of how the FDA should get involved with regulating medical devices, and one of the bits of guidance is any manufacturer can add cybersecurity protections to their device without having to seek FDA reapproval. So as you said, the trajectory on these things, well, wasn't so wonderful in the past, but it's getting much better. I will just one little comment, which is that you know, in my, in my management career partner's healthcare system, uh, I was in budget meetings where we would deal with the expense of like going from IV pumps to smart pumps. And the expense is in you know the tens of millions of dollars. So we it, this these these uh, protections they really do cost. I mean we have to spend the money, but they are it's one of the things that's raising healthcare prices. So you know we should be aware of. So remember, every medical device you buy in 2017 comes with an internet connection attached. So it is a very different world. Thank you. Does anyone in the audience have any questions? Hi, um, thank you all for your time. So as a student who's really interested in this field, one of the things I've struggled with is finding sources of information to keep up with new changes. So I was wondering, are there any particular books, uh, researchers, or research journals, or um, journalists that you would recommend following in particular? I mean, I, I had my start with the American Medical Informatics Association. So when I was a, an internal medicine resident in Baltimore, I went to a meeting and I learned a lot about natural language processing and different concepts. And then I you know, eventually took some coursework in that at the School of Public Health there. And I'm boarded in clinical informatics. I'm board certified in clinical informatics. Uh, in the typical Harvard response when people say, what should I read? And the answer is like, uh, by me or just anybody? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but uh, I actually, uh, Somewhat in that spirit, like uh, my colleagues and I at the New England Journal of Medicine, we started something called NEJAM Catalyst, which is an online spinoff you know, aimed at driving improved value in healthcare. And uh, so we have sections on care redesign and sections on the marketplace and uh, topics that touch, on, touch on, the, on the issues we've been talking about today. And it's, uh, we don't torture reader, writers so that things come out a little bit sooner than they might in a print journal, including the print normal journal. And in the spirit of Tom's comment, I, I write a blog every week <laughs> that attempts <laughs> to navigate this complex policy and technology environment we live in. And, and my recommendation actually would be to um, follow uh, healthcare leaders on Twitter because more often than not, I find out, for example, that Tom's Pat put out a new piece in the New England Journal because somebody tweets about it, and I see it. And similarly, when, um, when John posts something new, oh, I already follow his blog, but like, just be voracious 
about keeping up with healthcare leaders and reporters on Twitter, and you will routinely get teed up um, some very good information that you then can dive down deeper into. Yeah, I would actually second that as a journal. I mean, Twitter has become the bulletin, intellectual bulletin board for this kind of subject, and I actually think Twitter is a great way to, you just have to filter out the other stuff on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, someone else had a question. Hello, thank you. Um, I have a question for uh, Dr. Samal. Um, I, um, as a student here, I, I now work um, with the Mimic database out of Beth Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and just having worked with it since I started here, I think that it is, I think it has like these kind of databases and this kind of approach to medicine on like the secondary analysis of health records has like the potential to transform um, the way we do it. And you had mentioned that you had written all your code open source mm -hmm. and Mimic is open source and the coding we're doing is open source. and I, I think that approach is really valuable in academia, but a lot of the data in medicine is processed through proprietary sources, um, private companies which collect the data for the hospitals. And um, as far as I, I understand it now, it's actually quite hard to get at that data um, if it's once it's in, in that system. So I, I was curious how you see kind of this new approach to medical research and, and how, it, um, how do we work with pr private companies using proprietary software that aren't interested in open source? Yeah, I mean, I think this is actually a security question, so I will um, turn it over to you in a second. But I mean, that's been one of the great advantages for me of coming to Brigham Women's Hospital is that we had such a long, not just Brigham, but we have such a long-running database across partners and across the other health systems in Boston. Um, and so, yeah, I think we definitely haven't solved that yet. You can use an open source met methodology, but you need to be within a firewall. And everything that we did was within the Brigham firewall um, because it's a security issue. So the way that Harvard has tried to address some of this is through the I2B2 open source software system. You can send questions to the data as opposed to sending the data to a central location. So although the Mass General Hospital and the Beth Israel Deaconess may not easily commingle their data into some third-party database, I can ask, how many patients like this have shown up at the MGH, and did they live, did they die, what were their complications? And just to give, make this personal, that is what I did for my wife's cancer care. And we discovered it was actually for an Asian woman, age 50, to treat breast cancer of her type was better with a different medication regimen than, say, the standard protocol had recommended based on looking at thousands of patients who came before her with I2B2. Time for one more. Thank you. I know our time's running short. We've just had a couple questions about how big data can be used for disease surveillance and tracking and uh, to predict the trajectory of epidemics. And I'm just wondering if any of you wants to address that. We talk about biosense. Go right ahead. Okay. <laughs> so, as part of the Meaningful Use Program, um, all of our uh, healthcare organizations in the United States submit syndromic surveillance and reportable laboratory data to the Centers for Disease Control. It's actually hosted on Amazon under a business associate agreement on the GovCloud. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> and it's actually segregated so that the CDC can see the whole country, whereas individual states and departments of public health can see just their data. So, it's actually very well designed. But the answer is, is that as a side effect of getting electronic health records, we do now have the capacity of doing public health data submissions. And that is actually one aspect of meaningful use that's going very well. In fact, Devin, maybe you would comment on the, the public health data exchanges. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that um, 
you know, HIPAA has always permitted data to be shared for public health surveillance purposes with public health authorities like the CDC, like state health departments. And, and you know, from the very beginning when we were working on defining meaningful use and making recommendations around what the um, functionalities in electronic medical records should be, sending to public health was always one of the top priorities. And so it's actually really good to hear that um, that that's fairly robust. I think there are other um, data sources as well. You know, if you think about major healthcare systems um, that have their own sources of data in addition to what they send for surveillance purposes, you know, there are massive opportunities there to be able to sort of look across that data uh, and be able to monitor it for, for different signals, right? Uh, bioterrorism threats, for example, um, flu outbreaks. There have also been major technology companies that have worked to look at even publicly available data to see if there is a way to predict flu outbreaks, for example. I mean, you know, flu trends is, you know, a many-year-old um, issue, got a lot of news, isn't really talked about so much anymore, but it's just an example of, you know, skating to where the puck is, right? Like where's the data being collected and where what can where can we maximize its possibilities from a public good perspective? I think we've really just scratched the surface on all of that. Thank you. Well I think we're gonna get ready to wrap up. I want to do a quick lightning round. I'm gonna do a question. I want you each to give me a one word answer. One word. One word answer. Mm. <laughs> we're on time frame here. Uh, and uh, I'll just go down the line. Uh, will we ever get to hundred percent meaningful use? No. 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 100% meaningful use, yay, nay. Will we get there or no? no? Wow, pessimistic <laughs> no. audience. Okay, um, looking back in history, when they look back at this period in history, will the most important innovations in medicine have come from people with medical degrees or people with background in engineering and software development and IT? Engineering. I think medical degrees. I'm saying engineering too. Devin? Engineering. All right. <laughs> and um, the last year, somebody will use a fax machine for medical records. Uh, 2050. Uh, 2020. <laughs> I'm going with 2050. <laughs> it's okay to say never, by the way. Devin? Ever, so use a fax machine ever, ever, ever? For a medical record. Yeah, you know. If that will still be in paper, that'll never be in. We, we, we gorked the system. It was such a horrible question. Right, we'll take that as a long time for now. And then a last and more serious question. Tell me your biggest hope and concern going forward for the data revolution. Quickly. The biggest hope is that doctors will consider the electronic health record their favorite tool, and they'll start their day looking forward to using that system. Well, you're an optimist. I am, indeed. Yeah. And the biggest concern is we'll be overwhelmed with the flood of data coming from devices in the genome. Uh, no, my big hope is that it will enable healthcare to reorganize itself around groups of patients and meeting the needs of patients, truly get to patient-centered care, and that that will be uh, its focus. You know, my fear would be that it will all be oriented toward the collection of money under the fee-for-service system, which will die a slower death than we need it to do. Right, so that was my concern as well. The payment system is going to be the the, uh, the big stumbling block, and then and then the hope is that we will have more open source apps and apps that can plug and play with um, electronic health records and other data sources. Devin, you get the last word. 
my biggest hope is that patients will be more easily be able to get all of their health information and manage it and share it both to treat themselves but also to contribute it to research in a much more robust way than happens today. And my biggest fear is that it won't happen in my lifetime. <laughs> well, that is a nice note to end on. Hopefully you're wrong. Um, uh, I want to thank uh, my panelists, including Devin from afar. I want to thank the audience here and everybody watching out there. And to let everyone out there watching uh, know that you can continue the conversation on the forum website, uh, which again is forumhsph.com. Thank you to everybody. Thanks, panel, sponsors, everyone, uh, and have a good day.